Um, In his book, Set Apart, Kent Hughes cites these remarkable statistics. In America, 25% of all adults have experienced at least one divorce. That's not a surprise. One in four marriages ending in divorce is, is sadly a statistic that most of us are all too familiar with. What is remarkable is how that statistic breaks down. Listen carefully. Amongst unbelievers in the US, the divorce rate is 24%. While the percentage of born-again Christians who've been divorced is 27%. In the States then, in percentage terms, there is actually a higher divorce rate amongst Christians than unbelievers. Now, I know that statistics have to be thought about. There may be a number of reasons why these figures are as they are. Uh, There might be a question mark over how many of the people surveyed were actually born again at the time of their divorce. And we do very well to remember that many unbelievers don't get married, so when their relationships break down, they're not recorded as divorce. But even with those caveats in mind, it is still an alarming thought that divorce is so prevalent among real Christian believers in the USA. Now, I don't have figures for the UK, but as I reflected on this this week, I was left thinking that even if the figure here is not as high as it is in the States, uh, infidelity in marriage is still a huge problem for the church in the UK. I think back to a previous church that I uh, was involved in, and um, after I'd left, I heard of four marriages breaking up in 18 months. I knew all four couples. They all had real Christian testimonies, Three of the four families had significant positions of leadership within the church. I could paint a similar picture from another church that I used to be involved in where I heard, again, of a number of marriages ending in divorce after I'd left. Sadly, Christian marriages end in divorce. Now, if you want to read further on on, on all of this, I I do commend to you chapter 9 of Kent Hughes' book, Set Apart. Uh, the the strap line of the book is this, calling a worldly church to a godly life. Calling a worldly church to a godly life. And the truth of that strap line is what we'll see tonight as we look at the second half of Malachi chapter 2. In the area of marriage and faithfulness in the church, we are barely living any differently from the world and so we are declaring ourselves to be a worldly church, a faithless church. Church. Well, come with me then to Malachi chapter 2 and verses uh, 10 to 16. And as we come to this section of Malachi's prophecy, I'm mindful that this will not be easy for many people here. So uh, please keep in mind some of the words we've just sung. We've been singing of the great mercy of God, we've been singing of his uh, wonderful grace, Uh, we've been reminded right at the beginning of the service of his forgiveness. But keep in mind very especially the way this book, the book of Malachi, begins. Right at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, do you remember it when we were here uh, four weeks ago looking at this? The Lord says to his people, I have, I have loved you. I've loved you in the past, I will love you in the future. I love you today, I love you. And so as God speaks to us through his word this evening, please remember that he speaks the way he does because he loves us. Uh, he, he, he speaks the way he does because he wants to preserve marriage, to protect people in marriage, to care for children in marriage. And let me say this before we look at these verses. Whatever your history, whether you bear guilt or not, 
If you're the injured party in a failed marriage or a child of divorced parents, know that God speaks as he does because he loves his people. And know too that with the Lord there is always more grace and a fresh start for any who truly turn to him. So then, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 to 16, as we continue on this tour of ancient Israel, 400 BC, uh, it's a tour of the ruins of ancient Israel. For Malachi's day, God's people, uh, in Malachi's day, God's people were in ruins, in tatters. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen what a mess the people of God were in. Uh, And not least of all, how the Israelites had broken faith with their God. They they didn't honour him or respect him. They showed contempt for him. Uh, They demonstrated that by the the, the, the duff sacrifices they were bringing to him. They had broken faith with their God. They had been faithless with the faithful God who loved them. And now what we see in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 2 is that that faithlessness was reflected in their relationships with one another. What they did with God, they did in their marriages. Look at verse 11. It says there, Judah has broken faith. That's the refrain throughout these verses. Uh, You'll see it at the end of verse 10. Uh, Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with with one another? Uh, You see it in verse 11, as we've just seen. You'll see it in verse 14. You ask why it, it is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her. Uh, You'll see it again in verse 15. Uh, You'll see right at the end, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. And then at the end of verse 16, guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. Now when you see a repetition like that in a Bible passage, it tells you what the big thrust of that passage is. Verse 11, Judah has broken faith. And so on this uh, fourth week of our tour of ancient Israel, Uh, Let me, once again, act as your tour guide, if I may, and take you to meet the everyday man on the street. Well, actually, I should say, uh, come and meet the everyday man in his home. And so to the first point on on the handout, if you're following along, uh, we meet, firstly, a people who've broken faith. Uh, This is the sort of excursion that we're going to go on today that really helps us to get to know the indigenous population. Um, Just after Caroline and I were married, we we took a holiday to the Gambia. It was a terrific week. Uh, We went on a number of brilliant day trips. Uh, But without doubt, one of the the most enlightening moments was being taken to a local village. And on that trip, we saw how the locals really lived. And we were taken right into their homes, into their huts. Now, that's what we're going to do today in ancient Israel and we'll see what's really going on. Come down chapter 2 street then, and and to number 11. Now, if you're not with me, that's verse 11. I'll keep you you up to speed with where we're going. Verse 11. Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves. God, this is strong language, isn't it? A detestable thing, desecrating the sanctuary the Lord loves. What have these people done that the Lord would speak in these terms? A detestable thing has been committed in Israel, in Jerusalem. Uh, Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. The Lord speaks very strong language because of this problem, marrying the daughter of a 
foreign god. The man behind number 11 has married someone who doesn't follow the Lord. His wife is from another religion. She follows other gods. Well, from number 11, cross the road with me to number 14. You ask why, that is, why aren't you, Lord, taking any notice of our um, sacrifices? And reading on in verse 14, it's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Again, strong language. The Lord is acting as a witness against you. The story dominating this household as we go in through the door of verse uh, number 14 is a sorry affair, and affair is the operative word. They were childhood sweethearts. They got married early. You see, verse 14, she was the wife of his youth. And somewhere along the line, it all went horribly wrong. Whether it just went stale or they grew apart, at some point, he's been unfaithful to her. He's broken faith. Verse 16 spells it out. This family has been ripped apart by divorce. See, as we walk down chapter 2 street, we... We see that behind the closed doors of the Israelites in Malachi's day, there's a huge problem. The divorce courts are run off their feet. The child support agency is busy with all sorts of issues. Lives are broken. Marriages are rocky. Children are affected. But this is so much more than a social problem. The marriages reflected the spiritual state of the nation. See, again, end of verse 10 They're breaking faith with one another. And how does the Lord respond? Look at the end of verse 16. Look how the the passage ends. Guard yourself in your spirit. This is a spiritual problem. You see, because for the believer, marriage is meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and his church, his people. We see that right through the Bible. So in order to help me put this into context for a moment, let's leave Malachi and um, the second point on our, on our handout, let's do a quick biblical survey of marriage. A biblical survey of marriage. won't take long, but uh, come with me. Keep, keep your finger in Malachi 2 or put the uh, handout in Malachi 2 and come with me to Ephesians chapter 5, page 1176, the, the second of those two readings that we had as we do this quick biblical survey of marriage. So that we see that all the way through the Bible, marriage is to reflect the relationship between Christ and his people. Ephesians 5, 1176. Addressing Christians in Ephesus about marriage, Paul writes, Ephesians 5, verse 22, Wives, submit your husbands as to the Lord. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives. Verse 28, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Verse 31, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, the two will become one flesh. Paul is clearly writing about marriage. And and then we read verse 32. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Hang on, Paul, I thought you were talking about marriage. And then as we read back through these verses, we realise he is talking about Christ in the church and marriage. Now look, verse 23. As the husband is the head of the wife, the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church. 
Now you see what's going on, right? The way it's all it's so woven together, it's meant to be. As Paul writes about marriage, about Christian marriage, he's writing about relationship between Christ and his people. Because Christian marriage is meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and his people. And right from the beginning, that has always been the case. Look carefully at verses 31 and 32. Verse 31 is quoting Genesis chapter 2 and the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And then in verse 32, Paul says, uh, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul says in verse 32 that verse 31, Genesis 2, is talking about Christ and the church. You see the point? Verse 31 takes us right back to the beginning of time when God first invented marriage and it tells us that marriage has always been meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and his people. We see it in the first book of the Bible. We see it here in Ephesians. We see it in the very last book of the Bible. Uh, No need to turn it up. You can look it up later. It's on the handout. Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9. We see that right at the end of the history of the world as we know it, there will be a wedding. A wedding between Jesus, the bridegroom, being united to his bride, the church. See, throughout the Bible, from first to last, Christian marriage is meant to reflect the relationship between Christ and his people. And that's why faithlessness in marriage is so awful. That is why faithfulness in Christian marriage is so crucial. As we go back to Malachi chapter 2, that is why the Lord hates divorce as we see in verse 16. So listen to these words from Kent Hughes in in this book that I've mentioned, Set Apart. He writes this, Christian divorce lies about Christ and the church. Christ and his bride will never be separated. Christ loved the church as his own and gave himself up for her. His marriage to the church is eternal. And this is what the world needs to see in our relationships, writes Hughes. Now with that in mind, let's walk back down chapter 2 Street and see more closely, look more closely at all that the Lord says about these wrong and broken relationships. And now we're over the page on our handout to the problem of breaking faith. Let's go back to number 11. And the marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. And uh, will you listen to this? When a believer marries an unbeliever, they show themselves to be idolatrous. When a, a believer marries an unbeliever, they break the first and second commandment. First commandment and the second commandment are broken. In sharing your life with someone who follows other gods you inevitably put other gods before the Lord. It's what happens. I don't think we've got time to look at it now in any depth, but when you get home, uh, look at the uh, references that I've put on here. Firstly, uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 23 to 37. Uh, Nehemiah is, is almost a contemporary of Malachi's, and you'll see that Nehemiah is livid with God's people for marrying foreign women. Not that they're foreign, but because they have foreign gods. They follow other religions. There's an amazing moment. I mean, it's not funny. Do you ever get so, so um, frustrated you say, I, want to, I could tear my hair out? 
Read Nehemiah chapter 13 and you'll see that Nehemiah gets so frustrated he wants to tear their hair out. Nehemiah says marriages like these are so bad and they cause Solomon to sin. And if you want to see the reference for that, it's on the sheet, 1 Kings chapter 11. The sorry story of Solomon's polygamous and idolatrous relationships are there in 1 Kings 11. Look at it later and you'll see that as Solomon married women from other faiths, he was led into idolatry and ended up following their gods, other gods. Now with all this talk of idolatry and people who follow foreign gods, please don't think, please don't think that idolatry is a thing of the past or or unique to other religions. Idolatry is a constant temptation for the Christian. It's a constant battle for me. If not every day, most weeks I'm tempted to look elsewhere for meaning and satisfaction in life. Even though I know that Jesus is the meaning of life, even though I know that he alone can quench my thirst for life, when I read the glossy magazines or watch the adverts on the TV or talk to my unbelieving friends, all the time I'm being told by the world and by my friends that life is so much better when I've got money to burn and can go on exotic holidays and have tons of leisure time and a new mobile phone and a perfect body and a new love in my life and, you know, whatever it is. That message is all around me all the time and all the time I am tempted to believe it. That's all that idolatry is. It's saying, Jesus isn't my everything. This will will give me what I'm looking for. And so do you see, if my wife, my closest companion through life, my best friend and soulmate, my helper in life, if my wife is hankering after those things... I am far more likely to break faith with Jesus. I am far more likely to compromise and be led away from serving him if I am married to someone who does not have Jesus' priorities. Because it's hard enough when I've got Jesus' priorities and my wife does have Jesus' priorities to keep serving him. Please make no mistake about it. When God's people marry unbelievers they will be influenced by their spouse to follow something other than the true and living God. That's what's going on here in verse 11. That's what's going on among the people of God in Malachi's day. And it is a huge problem among Christians in our day. I see more Christians making a mess of their Christian lives by getting romantically involved with unbelievers than any other way. There's lots of ways people make a mess of their Christian life. But this is probably the top one. But young Christian people will not be told. They say, I'll influence him or her for Christ. And of course, occasionally they do, but largely they don't. And by the time they realise that their boyfriend or girlfriend is not going to turn to Christ, they are so in love with them that they cannot break free. And so they marry the unbeliever, and even if they don't give up on the Lord, in marrying an unbeliever, they certainly don't make the most of their lives for Christ. Single Christian here this evening, please hear this. Please hear this. If you marry someone who is not a committed Christian, you will find it hard to use your home for Christ. No, I don't want your Bible study people coming round to the house tonight. I want to watch the fo- I want to watch the football. You will find it hard to give significant amounts of money 
for Christ's work. Why do you want to give that much money to the church? We could spend that money on holidays and home improvements and gadgets and clothes and shoes and handbags. And You will find it hard to use your time for Christ. Are you not going to be involved with the Christians again, are you? Christian, if you get romantically involved with and then marry unbelievers, you will certainly be less effective through your life. And it will be a constant frustration for you if you do keep going with Jesus. And if that doesn't bother you, if you're happy with that, it reflects what place the Lord has in your life now. It shows that you have broken faith with the Lord. You're not treating him as your father and creator, as it says in verse 10, the one who made you and the one who redeemed you. So if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you're not married yet, take the warning, don't marry an unbeliever. And if you won't listen to the warning, I think this passage says you're breaking faith with God. You're saying the Lord is not number one in my life. And that's why he responds in the words of verse 12. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob. Let him be cut off from, my, from God's people because actually he has already cut himself off from God by telling God that he is not Lord of his life. Don't marry an unbeliever. Second, don't divorce your wife. Uh, we saw in verse 14 how some among God's people were breaking faith with the wife of their youth, exchanging their childhood sweetheart for another, for whatever reason. And as Kent Hughes says, Christian divorce lies about Christ in the church. Christ and his bride will never, never be separated. But verse 15, divorce breaks what God has made. Do you see verse 15? Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are his. In marriage then, God joins us together. He joins what should never be separated. Here is why marriage is so much more than just a piece of paper, as some people put it. Have you ever heard that expression? People say it to me sometimes. I don't need to marry her. It's just a piece of paper. No, it isn't. Something spectacular happens when the Lord joins people together. When, when we take a marriage, just about there, something spectacular happens. Not just that we sign a piece of paper, we do that. The Lord joins people together. In marriage there is a spiritual uniting of a man and woman. They become one flesh. Which is why Jesus said, those whom God has joined together, let no one divide. To divorce then, you see, is to break up something that God has made. Who, who do we think we are to tear apart what God has joined? And in the process, children are hurt. That's verse 15, you see. Why does he make them one? Well, here's one reason, because he was seeking godly offspring. Who do we think we are to hurt what God has made through marriage? A stable 
marriage relationship between one man and one woman is the best start children can have in life. And a a Christian marriage where where Jesus is right at the heart and centre of family life is designed for children to be able to come to know the Lord. Why did he make them one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. Uh, back in September we had the, uh, the, the new, well all the trainees and the new trainees round for lunch and, and I asked them all, how did you become a Christian? I think we probably asked them that at, at the interview process but I'd kind of forgotten. And um, most of them were brought up in a Christian home. And I do that every year. I ask them, we have them round for lunch and I ask them that question and uh, every year most of them are brought up in a Christian home. So here we have these new intake of trainees, these keen, committed young Christian men and women, and most of them are godly offspring of Christian marriage. Isn't that remarkable? It's brilliant, isn't it? And that's why, verse 16, God hates divorce. It lies, it lies about Jesus. It, it hurts other people. It affects children. And so who do we think we are to split what God has joined And so do you see how breaking faith in our marriages demonstrates that we've broken faith with God? I don't care that you've joined this. God, I'm going to break it. It says a lot about really what we think about God, doesn't it, when we do that? And then perhaps most desperate in all of this, when people disobey God in marriage in this way, either marrying people who aren't Christians or divorcing their wife, They then try to cover up their sin by doing all manner of religious things. It's a theme that runs right through these verses. These faithless Israelites were trying to cover up their faithlessness with sacrifices. Which brings us to the last point on the handout, the the problem of worthless sacrifice. So come back with me to verse 11 and to this issue of marrying unbelievers. And listen again to verses 11 and 12. And especially note the last phrase of verse 12 as I read it. Verse 11, Judah has broken faith, a detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. That's a very telling phrase. And it tells me that people think they can do a trade with God. Now, I'm not obeying you in the area of relationships, but I'll still come to church. I'm not obeying you in this Lord in my marriage, but I'll still be part of the home group. I'll not obey you when you say what you say about marriage, but I'll put some money in the collection bag. I'll tell people at work that I'm a Christian. I'll invite them to guest events. I'll bring offerings to you, Lord. It's an attempt to do a trade with God. You can have all of this, Lord. I'll obey you in all of these areas, Lord, but in relationships. Oh, no, 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 no. You're not telling me how to run that part of my life. Do you see see what it's saying? Who do we think we are to be acting like that towards the Lord God Almighty? But let's follow these faithless Israelites down to the temple for a moment as we continue on in this tour. 
Now look at them in, in verse 13. You see, another thing you do, says the Lord, you flood the Lord's altar with tears, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? As they go down to the temple with their sheep in their arms or whatever it is that they're sacrificing, they look so genuine, particularly when they get there. Look at their tears in verse 13. They flood the Lord's altar with tears. They're weeping at the altar in the temple. Lord, hear us as we pray, they cry. Now, in chapter 3, when we get on to that in a couple of weeks' time, we'll see that their crops have been destroyed by, by pests. These were tough times economically. They took their sacrifices to God in verse 13. They begged the Lord to hear their prayer. Give us better times, Lord. But nothing changed. He didn't seem to hear them. And they asked, verse 14, why? Why don't you accept our sacrifices? Why don't you bring us better times economically? Why don't you seem to be hearing our prayers, Lord? Why, 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 Lord? And the Lord answers, verse 14, you ask why? Because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her. Though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. See, the Lord won't accept their sacrifices because of how they're treating their wives. Because they're marrying unbelievers. Because they're divorcing their wives. You can't trade with God. God hates that. And that is what I think he's referring to in verse 16. You see, he says, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel, and I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is a very difficult verse to translate. And uh, you read the commentaries and lots of people go for different things. I'll tell you what I'm going for tonight, what this verse means. I think it's all to do with this trying to cover up my sin with a sacrifice. In the book of Ruth... Do you remember Boaz, the great kinsman redeemer, took off his garment and covered Ruth with it? You can see that in Ruth chapter 3 verse 9. Do you remember that lovely tender moment? It was a way of making a covenant with Ruth. He covered her with, his, uh, with, 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 with a blanket, with his garment. It was a promise of marriage. It was like giving an engagement ring. I know you'd rather have an engagement ring than a, than a, than a, than a, than a rug. Um, but still, that was how they did it then. Now, the sacrifices that the Israelites gave should have been a sign of the covenant between God and his people. But, verse 16, rather than be covered by the covenant, the Israelites were covering themselves with violence. Their sacrifices didn't come from a heart committed to God. We've already seen that. We've seen that right the way through this book. Their sacrifices weren't the mark of a people taking their relationship with God seriously. These, were sac- these sacrifices were, were, were nothing but violence. Animal after animal being pointlessly slaughtered, blood everywhere in the temple. God doesn't want that. He wants obedience, not sacrifice. In fact, God hates that, verse 16. Trying to cover over our disobedience with religious actions. That's horrible. God doesn't like it. Actually, unbelievers don't like it. They see right through it, don't they? You call yourself a Christian and then you live like this. Well, yeah, but I go to church. See, that's what Christians do when they're disobedient in this area of relationship. So the girl who married an unbeliever and said to me, but I'll still go to church. She was trying to cover her sin with a sacrifice. It wasn't much of a sacrifice, really, Sunday morning. 
And the Christians who were both married to other Christians but got involved in an adulterous affair with each other and said to me, but we're still serving God in leading the music. They were trying to cover their sin with a sacrifice. And God hates that. We can't compartmentalise our lives like that. We can't trade with God like that. Who do we think we are to treat the Lord God Almighty like that? Indeed, for the people of Malachi's day to do that was, verse 11, to desecrate the sanctuary the Lord loves. See, they're bringing these sacrifices and it's horrible. No, we can't compartmentalise life like that for the Lord owns all of us, every part of our lives. Verse 10, he is our father and our creator, the one who made us and the one who redeemed us. Verse 15, in flesh and spirit we are his. He owns all of us, flesh and spirit, every part of us. We can't pick and choose, not in, not in every area of life, not least of all in this huge area where the relationship between God and his people is meant to be reflected in a marriage. And so when we break faith in our marriages, we are declaring that we've broken faith with our God. For God says, verse 16, I hate divorce. And Jesus said, let those whom God has joined together, let no one divide. So what must we conclude when marriages in the church are no more secure than marriages in the world? What are we saying when we won't keep faith in marriage? we have to conclude what Kent Hughes concludes in his book. That we're a faithless church, a worldly church, faithless in our marriages and faithless towards our God. And that is desperate. For as Kent Hughes writes, the importance of an enduring marriage extends far beyond us. If we hope to reach the world, the church must become a culture in which divorce is an aberration. The faithfulness of Christ to his church must be seen in our faithfulness to one another. The love of Christ for his church must be seen in the way we love one another. And if we fail to say that by the way we're living, we're saying to the world we're no different. Don't bother coming to Jesus. He won't be faithful to you anyway, is what we're saying. Judah has broken faith. In the States, 27% of Christians, born-again Christians, have been divorced. Although, let's take that, as I said, as we should, carefully. And what about here? Well, I don't know that we can do anything about the rest of the country, but we can certainly do something about... Christchurch forward, can't we? And be committed, if you're not married, to marrying well, a believer who's going for it, which is costly because it might mean you don't find one for a long time or ever. And in our marriages, everyone else is off limits. Even if you are going through the hardest of times, and I know there are people Everyone else is off limits. Remain faithful. Reflect to the world the truth that marriage is meant to reflect. That Jesus is completely and utterly trustworthy 
in his relationship with his people. Let's pray.